You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Thanks to the holidays and a certain disease no one likes talking about. It's been a while since the last time we came together in 1 Thessalonians. At least it feels like it's been a while. We have titled this series The Model Church because this church, the church in Thessalonica, was one of the best. In chapter 1, Paul pulls back the curtain to his own prayer life and he starts rattling off the many reasons that he thanks God for this church. In verses 2 and 3, we saw that they were a committed church in their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. In verses 4 and 5, we saw that they were a chosen church, elected by God for a salvation that would come to them through powerful preaching. In verses 5 through 6, we saw that they were a copying church who imitated the proven character of godly men which then fueled their evangelism to become a commissioned church in verses 7 and 8. News spread as their lives lined up with their profession of faith, and then that brings us to the fifth and final distinguishing mark of this model church. Finishing out chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10, we see that they were a converted church. A converted church. We looked at a portion of verse 9 last time and ran out of time, So we're here to finish the chapter today. Next week, I'll be speaking at the Youth Winter Retreat, but after that, when we come back together again here in 1 Thessalonians, we will shift our focus from the model church as a whole to the profile of a faithful shepherd. I was talking with the elders just this last week at the elders meeting and told them that I had originally planned on preaching just a few short messages out of chapter two and then move on, but Right after Christmas when I came down with COVID and I found myself lying on a bed in the ER for 10 and a half hours, I had plenty of time to consider chapter two. So guess what? We now have the next several months figured out. And I can't wait to get into that chapter with you. It is a good chapter and is very applicable, not just for the preacher, for the pastor of the church, but for all of us. It is so good, so rich, so helpful. And thankfully, we don't have to wait very long to get there. But today, today we're closing the book on chapter one with the converted church part two. It seems fitting to end the way that we have began. So please follow along as I read the entire chapter here. Chapter one, it is only 10 short verses, starting in verse one. The word of the Lord says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you everywhere in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They say that repetition is the key to learning, and the key to learning is repetition. I won't bore you this morning by re-preaching everything that we have already looked at in verse 9, but a little bit of repetition is not a bad thing especially since it's been a while since we were here. So please bear with me as I remind us of the ground that we have covered thus far. You'll recall that Paul is thrilled. He is excited. He is elated out of his mind because of the good report that he keeps hearing about this church. In verse 9, he says, For they themselves, speaking of everyone, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He says that everyone keeps coming up to me and they keep telling me about me. They keep telling me about how you received me whenever I was with you and how wonderful it has been for you since. They keep telling me how you embraced us and our message, the gospel, when we came to you. And how you are no longer chasing shadows and and living for yourselves. You're now living for Christ. That's an exciting testimony of true conversion. And from this report, Paul gives us three evidences of true conversion. You will notice that there are three verbs here after the first conjunction in verse 9. So that's our outline. We have three godly reactions to the gospel that prove the genuineness of the Thessalonians' salvation. And consequently, three evidences of true conversion for all of us. These three actions in no way contribute to our salvation. They in no way make our salvation possible. These are not the the horses before the cart, okay? These in no way contribute to our salvation, but they do tell us whether or not our profession of faith is real, whether it's genuine or not. So what do they say? Number one, we see that true conversion turns. True conversion turns. Look at that first verb. Paul says, you turned to God from idols. You turned to God from idols. Remember that Thessalonica was a mixed bag of false religion and that these believers were once knee-deep in idol worship. They had little gods at home, in the city, on the street. Wherever they went, there were gods galore. Idolatry was everywhere and everyone was doing it. But before we dismiss these people as being uncivilized for worshiping a block of wood, let's not forget that we are people too. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're no different than they were. We might not bow down before a physical idol, but we are all born with the sinful desire to worship things other than God, to, to give and ascribe worship and honor and glory to things that, that don't deserve it. Not like God does. 
Richard Mayhew writes, an idol is anything, any attitude, any belief, or any God that so captures a person's attention and allegiance that God does not have preeminence. It's a good definition. Similarly, Michael Lawrence says, an idol is anything or anyone without which you cannot be happy and fulfilled. Wow. Now that's a hard one, isn't it? Because how many things do we think of? How many things come to mind when we, when we start to focus on what would make us happy? What would make us fulfilled? What is that desire that I have? Well, is it, is it God? Is it Christ? Is it the Lord Jesus? Is it our Savior? Michael Lawrence here says that an idol is anything or anyone without which you cannot be happy or fulfilled. And he didn't make that up. The New Testament refers to idols in this way over and over and over again. So idolatry is so much more than just buying a knickknack at the flea market or lighting a few candles or, or praying to an object. Idolatry is simply loving something or someone more than God. That's idolatry. And on that front, I'm afraid we're all guilty. Idolatry is often too much of a good thing and not enough of the best thing. It has everything to do with the heart. True conversion compels the heart to turn away from good things, from the good things that God has given us, and instead turn to God, to worship Him, to choose Him above everything else. Because you cannot hold on to your dead idols and worship the living God at the same time. It's either or, it's not both and. God is jealous for the hearts of his people. You have to accept him and abandon everything else. And the Thessalonians did that. They turned. But notice, they didn't just turn from idols. They turned to God. So in just a few words here, Paul has provided for us a working definition of conversion. Here are the two necessary components for salvation, repentance and faith. And when it comes to salvation, both are necessary. Both are vital. You can't have one without the other. And last time we did a, a stronger deep dive into each aspect. We looked at both aspects together. We saw that repentance is emotional, it's intentional, and it's directional. Or in a word, transformational. It involves a radical change of life. It's an internal reformation that flips the script and changes everything, the way that you think, the way that you desire, the way that you feel. It changes everything. Repentance is so much more than a change of mind. It is a change of conscience. And you can't have salvation without it. The same can be said for faith. Whereas repentance is explicitly turning from idols and implicitly turning to God, faith is explicitly turning to God and implicitly turning from idols. You put these two parts together and you have a beautiful whole of conversion. And like repentance, faith comes to us in three parts, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge acquires the facts, assent embraces the facts, and trust depends on the facts. I like how the book Biblical Doctrine puts it. MacArthur and Mayhew write, as the miracle of the new birth banishes the blindness of spiritual death, the eyes of the sinner's recreated heart look on the glory of Jesus and delight to find in him an utterly sufficient Savior. 
perfectly suited to cleanse from sin, provide perfect righteousness, and satisfy the soul. And then I love this statement. They say, thus saving faith is a fundamental commitment of the whole person to the whole Christ. That's the first evidence of true conversion, a life that has been radically changed through faith and repentance because true conversion turns. True conversion is not stagnant. It's not still. It doesn't keep to itself. It turns completely. That's number one, and that's as far as we got last time. So let's look at the other two verbs together. The first is turn, and the second is is serve. So what we see here is that true conversion toils. That's number two. It toils. It labors. It serves. It breaks a sweat. He says you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This word serve, it's a verbal form of the Greek noun doulos, which means slave. He's saying, you abandon one master for a better one, a dead one for a living one, a lie for the truth. A literal translation might read, you turn to God from idols to be a slave. You turned to God from idols to be a slave to God, to a God that is alive and true. And Paul commends them because These people, they gave up more than just their dead idols. They gave up more than the desires of their hearts. They gave up their rights. They understood the biblical concept of lost sinners being purchased from the slave market of sin to serve a new master. Paul loved this concept, and he championed it in the sixth chapter of Romans. We won't look at it today, but there he argues that everyone, without exception, is a slave to someone. Everyone is a slave. If you think this morning that you are a free man or woman, I got news for you. You're not. You're a slave. Because we are all slaves, either to, slave, either to righteousness or to sin. And those who are slaves of righteousness will obey God from the heart because he has set them free from sin by purchasing them for himself. Romans 6 makes that perfectly clear. It's a beautiful truth. It's a transcendent truth, a wonderful truth for all of us that we have been transferred from a cruel and angry and horrible master to a wonderful master, to one who cares for us, loves us deeply, and has our best interests at heart. Unfortunately, though, this concept, this truth, it offends people when it should be a supreme comfort for all of us. John MacArthur hits the nail on the head in his book aptly titled Slave. He says this, he says, the New Testament reflects this perspective, commanding believers to submit to Christ completely, and not just as hired servants or spiritual employees, but as those who belong wholly to him. We are told to obey him without question and follow him without complaint. Jesus Christ is our master, a fact we acknowledge every time we call him Lord. We are his slaves, called to humbly and wholeheartedly obey and honor him. But he doesn't stop there. He adds this. He says, we don't hear about that concept much in churches today. Instead of teaching the New Testament gospel where sinners are called to submit to Christ, the contemporary message is exactly the opposite. 
Jesus is here to fulfill all of your wishes, likening him to a personal assistant or a personal trainer. Many churchgoers speak of a personal savior who is eager to do their bidding and help them in their quest for self-satisfaction or individual accomplishment. The New Testament understanding of the believer's relationship to Christ, however, could not be more opposite. He is the master and owner. We are his possession. He is the king, the Lord, and the son of God. We are his subjects and his subordinates. In a word, we are his slaves. End quote. He's right. Christ is our incredible savior, yes. But he has saved us so we would belong to him and serve him, not the other way around. Those who belong to Christ have been bought by Christ and therefore we belong to him and we serve him. But that's only true for the truly converted. Paul says, I know that you have been truly saved because you turned to God from idols to be a slave to a God that is alive and true. But what does it mean to become God's slave? And what does such language tell us about the work that God expects from us. I want to quickly give you three implications or takeaways from this word. First of all, serving God is serious work. It's serious work. It's not easy. It's work. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that the primary role and function of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the work of the ministry. Our church's philosophy of ministry comes from Colossians 1.28. Let's go ahead and turn there for a quick moment. It's just one book to the left, so you only have a page or two that you have to turn. Colossians 1.28, a very familiar passage for the life of our church. There Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was Paul's philosophy of ministry, his reason for evangelizing and for edifying the saints. And that should be our goal as well, to see everyone complete in Christ. But what does the next verse say? He adds, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That word toil, it means to work to the point of exhaustion. And the next word, struggling, agonismi, is where our English word agony comes from. It harkens back to ancient athletics. It means to fight, to struggle, to stretch your muscles, to push through the pain, to never give up, to die trying. You put these two words together like Paul does here in this text, and he is saying that he labored to the point of exhaustion, but he pushed through the pain. He pushed through. He struggled and he fought for it. This isn't just work. This is hard work. This is painful work. You know, right now I'm going through premarital counseling with a young couple here in the church, and every time I do that, it's, inter- it's, it's so wonderful, isn't it, to sit across the table and to see two young people in love, to see their eyes just glisten and glow as they, sh- as they stare into each other's eyes and as they care for one another and they, they pass those little grins when they think you're not looking. Isn't that wonderful? It's beautiful, right? No matter how many times you tell that couple, marriage is wonderful, it is a gift from God, 
and it's going to require work. Every time you say that, without fail, and I'm no different, happened to me too, it's not until you're actually there that those words make sense. When you start to stretch a muscle, when you start to break a sweat, when things start to really come together and you're like, oh, wait a minute, yeah, that's right, this does hurt, this is work, oh. Well, that's exactly what Paul describes here. He is struggling. He is fighting for it. He is stretching a muscle. He is pushing through the pain. This isn't just work. It's hard work. It's serious work. But thankfully, he doesn't end there, does he? He says that this work is composed of man's struggle, but it's also by God's strength. I'm thankful that he frames it that way. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Meaning that true service, true ministry is never worked out by our efforts. Instead, our efforts are the result of his energy. He gives us the desire and he gives us the power to serve him. And as a result, we struggle. As a result, we push through the pain and we persevere. Listen, serving God is serious work. It is agonizing. It is exhausting. It takes your time and your talent and your treasure. It pulls you away from things that your heart wants. It can be stressful. It can be costly. And if for no other reason, serving God is hard because it means serving people. People who are not God and who are not easy to serve. Unlike God, people lie. People break promises. People disappoint and discourage. Anyone who comes to you as a Christian and tries to sell you on becoming a Christian by saying, come over to our side, come to Christ, and everything will be better. Things will get easier, and your standard of life will improve. Anyone who comes to you who says, before I was saved, here's, here's the mess I was, and now that I'm saved, I have a beautiful wife, I have a car, I have a home, I have all these other things that God has given me. Anyone who presents to you a gospel like that is either naive, selling something, or lying to your face. Because there is nothing easy about denying yourself, picking up your cross daily, and following Christ. Christ didn't have it easy at his first coming. He suffered. He suffered greatly, greater than any man has ever suffered, and we have been called to follow in his footsteps, because what's the pattern? Suffering first, then glory. Listen, this is hard. This is difficult. It's not comfortable. It's costly. But I appreciate what Donald Whitney writes in his book, Spiritual Disciplines. He has this to say. He says, service that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. That's good. We need that reminder. Service that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Everything we do that has value comes at a price. And there is nothing more costly or valuable than to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the first implication of becoming God's slave. Serving God is serious work. It's serious. Number two, serving God is satisfying work. It's satisfying. Despite all of its hardships, all of its pain, all of its agony and, and hurt, it is still the most gratifying and fulfilling work there is. 
In John 4, Jesus met with a Samaritan woman at the well. And he had had a hard day. He had been walking all day. He was exhausted. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He just needed to sit down and rest for a while. He needed a break. He had already experienced a long day of serving his father. And then this woman comes along. And the two of them, they start talking. And her life is radically changed. After she leaves, the disciples come back with lunch and they offer some of it to Jesus. You would think that Jesus would grab the hamburger out of their hand and devour it because he was starving, he was hungry. It had been a long day. Physically, he was hungry. And the disciples are urging him to eat, but what does he tell them in that moment? He says this, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. That's my satisfaction. He says, the work of serving God is so satisfying. It's my food. I can't live without it. Over and over again, Jesus would serve God to the point of exhaustion. So much so, he could sleep like a baby as the waves crashed on the sides of the boat. For him, serving God meant going 40 days without eating in a desert. It meant sleeping on the ground outside. It meant getting up early before everyone else did so he could go and pray and spend time alone with the Lord. And yet in spite of all that, all of the pain, the hunger, the weariness, and the inconvenience of it all, Jesus was so fulfilled in serving God, it became his food. He couldn't live without it. It nourished him and it strengthened him to keep on serving. It satisfied him. And he devoured it because there is nothing better than serving God. There is nothing better, nothing at all. That's number two. Serving God is serious work. Yes, it's hard, but it is also satisfying work. It is the most rewarding work, the most fulfilling work there is. And then finally, it's significant work. It's significant work. Unlike so many things that we do, Serving God is never trivial. It always has value, even when we can't see it. The same man who wrote Colossians 1.29 also wrote 1 Corinthians 15.58. And Paul toiled and he struggled with all of Christ's energy as Christ powerfully worked within him. But he also had this to say about serving God. He encouraged others with these words. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In other words, keep on doing it. Keep on keeping on. Keep on serving the Lord because it is never a waste of time. It might not always feel like it, especially when you can't see the results, when you don't know what's going on. It doesn't look like anything is happening so much of the time as you are serving the Lord. You might go your entire life without ever seeing the fruit of your spiritual labors. But even when you can't see the proof, God has promised, he has made a promise that your service to him is never in vain. It is never worthless. It is never without value. Your service to God is valuable and worthy of the effort. In his eyes, it is incredibly significant. And that is all that matters. 
He is our master. He is the one that we should be supremely concerned about. We should want to please him above everyone and everything else because he is supreme. And he tells us that it matters to him every time we serve him. Now, someone might think, come on, man. You're making this sound too appealing. You're, you're, you're really trying to woo people into the gospel today, aren't you, Hans? I mean, come on. What are you doing? This sounds like work. I mean, after all, we, we want people to make a profession of faith, don't we? We want them to sign on the dotted line and grow from there. Well, yeah, so long as they know what they're signing. So long as they know what they're signing up for. I mean, we've all heard of the Pony Express, that infamous company that carried the mail by horseback in the mid-1800s. And believe me, from what I've read, it was a tough job. You were expected to cover 75 to 100 miles every day, night and day, and then change your horse out every 15 miles. To cover great distances at great speed, you had to travel light, and all you could take with you was your knife and a revolver. Indian attacks, fierce weather, and all sorts of danger were guaranteed. So how could they possibly recruit volunteers for this job? How could you make such a position attractive to the general public? Here is a copy of the advertisement they posted in a San Francisco newspaper. It said, wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders, willing to risk daily, orphans preferred. How's that for an advertisement? The ad was honest, straightforward, and it worked. Pony Express never lacked riders. In the same way, Sir Ernest Shackleton, the Antarctic explorer, once posted this advertisement in a London newspaper. It simply said, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. The result, thousands responded immediately to the call, ready to sacrifice everything for the elation of adventure and uncertain honor. Friends, we have something far better than that. God has called us to the most serious, the most satisfying, and the most significant work imaginable. He has called us to obey this book to abandon everything and to serve him in everything and to encourage others to do the same. Some will walk away and say, nope, no thank you, not for me. Others will answer the call and they will turn to God to serve him. They will deny themselves. They will pick up their own cross daily and follow him to their death because that is what true conversion looks like. That is the job. That is the description we have presented to us clearly in black and white here in this book. And that's number two. That is the second evidence of salvation. Those who are truly saved, what do they do? What do we do? We turn to God and we toil for God because we are his slaves. And then finally, number three, true conversion, trust. True conversion trust. Look at verse 10. He says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath 
to come. The third verb in our text is the word wait. Turn, serve, wait. It might surprise you to know that this Greek word for wait, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. This is it. This is the only occurrence of it. But it does appear frequently in the Greek Old Testament as the people of God are told to wait for the Lord's salvation. It's an active word that refers to trust, unlike the passive experience that we have all had waiting in a doctor's office to be seen. This verb carries continual action. It is an active verb. To wait for his son is to actively anticipate his coming at all times. Church, he is coming back. Jesus is coming back. His first coming didn't happen all at once in a day, and his second coming is no different. He has a plan in place, and we are part of that plan. Until, we need to, until then, we need to actively wait and patiently trust this verse. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. This verse is composed of three primary blocks. If you are following along in the ESV, they have been con- conveniently separated for you by two commas. So it's easy to see how this verse unfolds. It's crammed full of information about the second coming of Christ, but generally, Paul wants us to walk away with three big-picture truths about Jesus. That's what he's getting at here in this text, in this verse. Three sources of hope and trust for the truly converted. The Christian will not only affirm these three truths, but will live life differently because of them. Number one, we know he will return. We know he will return. He says, to wait for his son from heaven. That little phrase packs a punch. It has a wallop because there is a lot there. We see his deity in that title, his son, because he is God's son. That doesn't mean that God gave birth to him, obviously, because he has always been one with the Father, but their relationship is that of family. Jesus is completely divine. He is fully God and fully man, and he is coming back from heaven. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 3, I will come again, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And not just to them, but to everyone who believes. He is coming back to take us to himself so we can be with him. You say, that's great, Hans, but tell me something I don't already know. I mean, we've all heard that, right? Most of you, I mean, you've, you've come to this church more than once. You've heard the gospel. You know that Jesus is returning. So come on, Hans, give me something profound. Friend, I'm here to tell you, there are a few things more profound than this. In fact, I can't think of one. The fact that Jesus is coming back. Isn't it enough to be reminded and comforted by the fact that he is coming again? These same disciples, they needed a reminder. In Acts 1.11, as they stood watching Jesus ascend into the clouds, two angels appeared next to them and encouraged them with this reminder. They said to them, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come. He will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This wasn't new information for these disciples. Jesus had already told them he was coming back, but they needed the reminder. And so do we constantly That's why Paul intentionally included the second coming in so many of his letters. 
At times he inserts it and you, some, and you even have to sometimes scratch your head and wonder, why would he put that there? It's because it's so important. Because it needs to be here. It needs to be right in front of our faces at all times. We can never afford to forget the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he is coming back soon. In Titus 2.13, Paul says that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul never got tired of reminding others of the second coming. In fact, every single chapter in this letter to the Thessalonians concludes with a reference to the return of Christ. It begins with our verse, chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, that he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Look at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Look at the last verse of chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Chapter four concludes with a six verse section about the rapture. And look at verse 23 at the end of chapter five in his concluding statements. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every chapter returns to this reminder and concludes itself with the fact that Jesus is coming back. He will return. And then John, he takes it even further. He takes it to the next level. In Revelation 1-7, he says, behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds. And John doesn't say he will come. John says that he is coming. His return is so close, he speaks of it in the present tense. Jesus is in the process of coming back to earth and he will be here before we know it. And Jesus himself says at the very end of the book, he says, surely, surely I am coming soon. What an encouragement for us today that Jesus is not dead and he's not distant. He is alive and well, standing at the door with his hand on the knob, ready to return to this earth and settle the sin problem once and for all. He's coming back, and we need to trust that, that he is coming back every minute of every day. We need to be ready to go at a moment's notice. A verse that we have looked at before is 1 John 2.28. It's one of the most sobering verses of the second coming for Christians. Let's go ahead and turn to it for a moment. 1 John 2, 28. To realize that it is just one verse, but it packs a punch. 1 John chapter 2, and verse 28. And now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Listen carefully. When Christ returns, some Christians will approach him with confidence, while other Christians 
will shrink away from him in shame. Two Christians stand before the Lord, both saved, both forgiven. But only one, the one who abides in him, will be able to keep his eyes off of the floor. Abide in him, meaning those who rest in him, those who remain in him, those who rely on him, those who are awake and actively living the Christian life now. Those Christians will approach their Savior with confidence, uninhibited, unashamed. But for those Christians who do not abide in Christ, the believer who lives for himself, the believer who who treats sin as an inoculation and not the soul-destroying poison that it is, those who have been saved by Christ but choose to abide in the world, to love the world, those Christians will not approach him with confidence. Instead, they will flinch at his coming. Let me ask you this, just to put it in, in a practical frame. Have you ever wondered where you will be and what you will be doing when the trumpet blasts and Jesus returns in the blink of an eye? Has that thought ever crossed your mind, especially when you find yourself knee-deep in sin? Have you ever thought to yourself, I can't do this right now. I've got to cut this out. I've got to stop. What if Jesus comes back? Or what if I die from a heart attack in the middle of this terrible sin? Those thoughts ever crossed your mind? Because they should, constantly. Listen, if you are truly saved, then Yes, that sin has been paid for at the cross. You don't need to worry about God changing his mind about you or worry about losing your salvation. That is not the concern. But you should, you should care about what you are doing with your body while it is being glorified. You should care about that. You should care about the things you look at the things you participate in, the things that you do, the things that you say, the people you hang out with, you should care about all those things. Certainty of Christ's appearing should have a purifying effect on all of us, all of the time. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Encouraging verse, wonderful verse. We all know 1 John 3, 2. Most of us are familiar with that verse, but what does it say next in verse three? He's, he then brings it home. He lands the plane. He brings us to the conclusion. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What is the natural response to knowing that one day we will be like him when we see him? It's not to disregard what we have now, knowing that one day Jesus will finish the work and everything will be made better. That is not the right response. That is not a proper response. No, our response should be to purify ourselves, knowing that one day he will finish the job. Friend, make no mistake. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back to collect a people who have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, people of faith and repentance who work for the Lord and wait for him. He will return. 
That's the first life-altering truth that we hold on to as the converted church as we wait, knowing that he is coming back. We also know that he is resurrected. That's number two. He is resurrected. Look at the second block of our verse. He says, whom he raised from the dead. Obviously, this is significant because without the resurrection, there would be no return of Christ. Our lives are nestled between these two poles, resurrection in the past and return in the future. And because he was resurrected, we too look forward to a resurrection like his. There is so much to say about the resurrection of Christ, but it is sufficient to point out that Paul would have not included it here if it wasn't an essential bedrock to the trust that we have in Christ. This is foundational, this is essential, this is important. That's life-altering truth number two. He will return and he is resurrected. Finally, we know that he will rescue. He will rescue. The chapter ends with Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the wrath. This word for wrath, orge, appears three times in 1 Thessalonians while the other word for anger, thumos, doesn't appear at all. Thumos refers to a sudden outburst, a, a fit of rage, an explosion of sorts. Has anyone here ever given in to thumos? I know I haven't, right? Thumos. We're all familiar with that. But orge, our word here refers to premeditated response. Orge is different. It's not reactionary. It doesn't swell up in the moment. It's premeditated. It takes time. It builds. Both forms of anger are pretty much forbidden for us. They appear side by side in Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Likewise, Colossians 3.8 says, but now you must put them all away, anger, malice, wrath, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So both are forbidden for people like us. There is no room for orge or thumas within the life of the believer. But for God, for God, because he is righteous and everything he does is righteous, including his responses, there is no such limitation on him. None whatsoever. He is free to pour out his wrath upon mankind for every crime that they have ever committed against him. And according to the first three chapters of Romans, he can't wait to do it. That day is coming. His holiness and his perfect sense of justice demands it. Think about Every time you pick up a newspaper or you start scrolling online and you look at the news or you flip on the television and you see something terrible that has happened, something awful. Think about the tragedies that have entered your own life and your own family. Terrible things happen to all of us. None of us here are immune to pain. None of us here are in such a sterile bubble that we have never experienced the consequences of sin, either our sin or someone else's. Think about how you feel when you see such things. And then think about how God feels. The perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God. The holy God. And knowing that it is all a direct assault against Him. Truthfully, we all deserve hell. 
for our sinful rebellion. But thankfully, thankfully we have the first part of this block here in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, Jesus who delivers us. Jesus who delivers us. Why? How? How is that possible? Because God has already poured out the fullness of his wrath against sin. Only once at the cross. You've heard me say it before. Sin must be dealt with. All of those horrible, terrible, destructive things in the world must be dealt with. And they will be dealt with in one of two places. Either at the cross or at the final judgment. At the cross, Jesus takes the punishment that you deserve, and his perfect record is then transferred to your account. At judgment, you have to pay the price for your own sins, and there is no coming back from that. At the cross, God poured out his wrath upon his son so that you could become one of his children. All you have to do is then repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Jesus and he will deliver you from the wrath to come. It's the only way. Because at judgment, all you have is you. And as wonderful as you are, I hate to break it to you, you are not good enough. You're not. None of us are. We are all great sinners in need of a great savior. We need a great Savior, one who has suffered the wrath of God and died in our place but didn't stay dead. One who has been raised from the dead, who conquered the grave and ascended back to heaven. One who is both fully God and fully man, who will one day return to earth to destroy the wicked and deliver his people. Until then, how else shall we live but to turn to toil and to trust? Paul saw that in the Thessalonians. I see that in you. Friends, this is what we have been called to be. This is how a converted church acts. This is how it looks. This is what we do as a converted church in a world full of dead churches, churches that profess Christ, but don't turn, don't toil, and don't trust. Before we close, I have to ask, friend, are you truly saved? Have you turned to toil and trust the living God? I'm afraid churches are full of people who believe that these verses are optional. They believe that Jesus came and died to save sinners, yes, and that's wonderful. That's great. That'll only get you halfway over the bridge. They don't believe that turning away from sin or pursuing holiness is necessary. Worse than that, there are those who think that it's downright dangerous and wrong to promote that within our churches. Back in 2011, Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavigian, released a book titled Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. It's a catchy title. It quickly became a popular book as you would expect it to be. I mean, why wouldn't it? It argues that the best way to increase your sanctification is to stop trying to increase your sanctification. As you can imagine, though, over a decade later, the fruit of such a mindset is not increased holiness. It's not Christ-likeness or greater service to God. It's moral failure. 
and greater consequences for tolerating sin. We see that everywhere. It sounds good. It sounds so wonderful and attractive. And yes, there is a kernel of truth there because we know that we cannot in any way add anything to our salvation. All we bring to the cross is our sin that made his death necessary. And yet, and yet, we have not been saved to sit on our laurels. We have not been saved to live stagnant, smelly lives before the Lord. Church, we cannot afford to make repentance optional. We cannot tolerate sin. We cannot embrace those things that will destroy us. There must be a continual turning from sin to righteousness, and that takes work. Serious work, satisfying work, significant work. None of us have been saved to sit and squander our salvation. We have all been saved to serve, redeemed from the slave market of sin. We have been bought with a price, and we no longer live for ourselves. We live to, ser to serve the living and true God. We live to serve him who raised Jesus from the dead and has promised to raise us up with him, to raise us up in the last day. And so we trust him. We wait for his son to return from heaven and to rescue us from his red-hot anger and wrath. Friends, this is what the converted church looks like. We turn, we toil, and we trust. Because that is what great sinners do when they are saved by a great Savior. Heavenly Father, Lord God in heaven, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to die in the place of sinners. Thank you for loving us, for caring for us, for giving us so much grace. Lord, we sang that song earlier his mercy is more. To know that your mercy, your grace covers every sin. We sin many times, over and over and over again. We are chained to this decaying body of sin and death. And yet, your mercy is more. Lord, thank you. I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has not bow the knee to this king who has not submitted their lives to the lordship of Christ, who have not been redeemed from the slave market of sin and transferred from serving sin to serving righteousness, to serving the living God, turning from their idols to serve you, then God, I pray that you would work in their hearts this morning. I pray that you would stir within them a desire to serve you, knowing that you are a good master. You are a good God. You are the best God and the only God. And Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts this morning. Work in our hearts this morning. May we never forget the truths of your son's coming. May we live in eager expectation of it. Lord, when we are tempted to sin, when we are tempted to wander, Lord, I pray that you would bring this truth back to the front of our minds, that we would never forget it that your son is returning soon. Jesus is coming back. And Lord, we long for the day 
we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would live as men and women who pursue holiness, who will stand before him on that day in confidence and not in shame. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for your marvelous grace, your incredible mercy, and for the love that you have poured out in our hearts through your spirit by the sacrifice of your son on the cross. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.